Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Paul has left Berea. Some of the Jews from Thessalonica had found out that he was at it again. He was preaching the word again. The man just won't stop. He keeps getting chased from city to city. He's been imprisoned and mocked and beaten and flogged and falsely accused and left for dead. And he's still preaching the word of God. And he's been doing it in Berea. And sinners have been coming to Christ. And the Jews aren't happy. And some of the Jews from Thessalonica in verse 14 have come. Verse 13 rather. The Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea. They came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. So prompted by the local Christian believers, leaving Silas and Timothy at Berea, Paul and some of his friends take a ship, and they escort him safely to Athens, this huge ancient city where Paul would most likely be safe. And satisfied that the apostle is out of danger, his escort returns home to Berea with instructions to send Timothy and Silas down to Athens, presumably by road, and Paul is now in Athens on his own. What will he find there? You will realize what a haughty city Athens really was. Let's set the scene for a minute, for it'll help us to understand just a little bit about what Paul will find when he gets to Athens. Think about its contribution to ancient history. When Paul arrived at Athens, the city was in the twilight of its greatness. About 500 years earlier, in my opinion, having studied it rather extensively now, Athens was the greatest city in the world. Its decline had been ushered in by a very long war, the Peloponnesian War, which dragged on. It was a war between Athens and Sparta, and anyone who studied ancient history will have studied the, the Peloponnesian War in great detail. It was a real challenge. It was a hard war to fight. Athens was a sea power with ships. And Sparta, their opponent in the Peloponnesian War, was a land power with an army. So how did an army and a navy fight each other? Well, with great difficulty. So it dragged on for around 25 years. And when it came to an end in 404 BC, Athens was a shadow of what it had been. It did find a place in the ancient world, but all of its glory days were gone. Its contribution to ancient history was immense. Its contribution to democracy. Athens was known as the very cradle of democracy. It was governed by a council known as the Ecclesia, which is the same word that we use for church. The assembly, there were free-born adult male citizens. It was ruled over, that was 
that was presided over by people called the archons, the magistrates, and by a council of ex-archons known as the Areopagus, a kind of senate. And under Roman rule, Athens was permitted to retain its ancient system of government. It was almost a quasi-autonomous state. It was this latter body, the Areopagus, the Senate, to which Paul was brought. It was the great council of the Areopagus, but in Paul's day, it was very little more than a debating society. But we look at that in a fortnight's time. Athens had a contribution to ancient history. Athens had made a contribution to democracy. Athens had made a contribution to ancient thought. Athens was the home of great philosophers, boasting some of the greatest names, people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. There were great schools and great debates. There were two of these here mentioned in this passage. Um, the Stoics and the Epicureans, we'll talk about them in a moment. And its contribution to ancient culture. Athens was a place of culture. It was the home of great literature and great drama. Great drama was notable for its use of a chorus, uh, a group of actors speaking together in unison. It was all about the, the use of language and and the use of drama and dramatic form and diction and voice. Athens was the home of rhetoric and oratory, and its language, Attic Greek, became the very basis of the Koine text of the New Testament. When Paul went to Athens, he was a babbler. Remember that Paul, writing to the Corinthians, talks about how his speech was contemptible. We don't know why, whether he had a stammer or whether he was challenged in some way with speaking, but in the great city where speech and rhetoric and drama was everything, Paul was just a babbler. But there was something more striking about Athens than all of that. When Paul travelled to Athens, he travelled by sea as we see in verse 14. He went away by sea, and he traveled to Athens, and that meant he'd have entered Athens through the port of the city, a place called Piraeus, which is still the port of the city to this day. When you came to Piraeus, the first thing that you would be confronted with on the road to Athens was the huge statue of Neptune, the Greek God of the sea, seated on a horse with his trident raised to attack. It was the first of many idols in the city of Athens. One commentator, one frequently quoted comment, is that in Athens it is easier to find a god than a man. It's true. In Athens there was a population of 10,000 citizens. There was hundreds of thousands of idols. So is it any wonder that Paul's spirit was troubled within him? In his book, Paul, Missionary Theologian, Robert Raymond tries to list him for us. I can't give you a list. Multiple statues, shrines, 
temples to false gods. It just goes on and on and on. Idolatry was everywhere. And Paul is finding himself wandering alone through the streets of this great city. And all around him is idolatry. Shouldn't we be troubled when we look at the idolatry of this world? Paul waited, it says in verse 16, Paul waited for them at Athens and his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. How does the idolatry of this world affect our spirits? Does it distress us the way that it distressed Paul? Does it challenge us? Does it cause our spirit to be stirred within us when we see the people who live around us, our friends and our neighbours and our families and our loved ones, given over, wholly given to idolatry? Okay, we might not have the statues and the superstitions of Athens. We may not even have the statues and the superstitions of the Roman Catholic Church. But the idols of life that take the place of our creator in our lives, our self, the idols of this world, the idols of celebrity culture, the idols, the idolatry, of modern thought and philosophy, the God of sexuality, the God of gender reassignment, the God of, you name it, the God of abortion. All around us, like Paul in Athens, we see our city wholly given to idolatry. What was Paul's response when he saw the idolatry? Now this is interesting because I, don't, I have to be careful what I'm saying here. I, I don't want to suggest that we, sh- I don't want to give any impression that we should not take a stand for morality because we should as Christians. We're to be salt in our society as well as light. But for the Christian church, the main response is to do what Paul did. And what Paul did was to preach the gospel in the midst of that society. It is the right thing to do, to take a stand against the immorality of this land. We lobby politicians. That is the right thing to do. We lobby politicians and we go on crusades and campaigns, and that's the right thing to do. But the mission, first and foremost, of the church, in the midst of the idolatry of this world, is to boldly proclaim the gospel. That's why I get so annoyed and upset when I hear interviewers interviewing Christian ministers on the television and they're interviewing them perhaps on the subject of homosexuality, and they will say something to them like, what would you say to some poor man or some poor woman who hears what you're saying today 
and they think they're not as valuable uh, in your eyes uh, and they're considering committing suicide because of what you're saying to them. And many evangelicals will at that point start to back down and backtrack and start to soften the blow. When in fact the right response is that what we should be saying to those people is repent of your sin. Repent and turn from it and turn to Christ. So Paul, seeing the city wholly given to idolatry, verse 17, therefore, because the city was full of idolatry, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Now let's think about these people for a moment. What do we see here? We see hopeless confusion. Most of the people who inhabited the public squares in Athens had nothing to do all day but to talk. For a man who wanted to do some public speaking, or for a man who wanted to find someone to talk to, there'd be no problem at all. Verse 21, if you go down the page a wee bit, it says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So Paul took the opportunity. The opportunity given by their willingness to listen, he used that to preach the gospel. And we're told here that two of these groups accosted him. Verse 18, certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. Paul was accosted by these philosophers, certain philosophers. What about them? There were two of these groups that came to tackle Paul in the public square that day. The Epicureans, uh, a school of thought devised by the philosopher Epirus around 300 years before Paul's visit. Epicureans, we think of Epicureans, I suppose, as gluttons, don't we? An Epicurean is somebody who just wants more and more of the good things of this life. It wasn't quite that in those days. The Epicureans believed vaguely in some concept of a god, but maybe multiple gods, but they were away far off. They weren't bothered by the affairs of mere men and women. They didn't believe there was going to be an afterlife. All they believed was that in this life you have all there is. So you better make the best of it. Just eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They believed that there was a measure of pain and pleasure in every life, a balance. Every life would have pain, every life would have pleasure. The best life was the life where there was less pain and more pleasure. Most of them simply wanted a bit of tranquility, peace and quiet, free from pain and distress. We have people like that all around us today. They will say, look, this life's all you've got. Do what suits you. Do what feels good to you. Put your own pleasure first. 
Do what pleases you. Don't take any responsibility for how that might inconvenience others. Don't inconvenience yourself. Some of them even profess to be Christians. I suppose Epicureanism is like an early Greek version of Joel Osteen's philosophy of your best life now. If you're having your best life now, you haven't much to look forward to in heaven. You have in paradise with the Lord. And it comes into evangelicalism as well. A young couple I knew belonged to a very small church in Bangor, Goodwee Church. They'd recently been married, and the husband had attended that church for many years. He taught in the Sabbath school. He was a youth leader. He drove the minibus that picked up the elderly people in the estates around the town and brought them to church. He was a deacon in the church, serving in the church, and sometimes when called upon, he would lead the services. He was a man very heavily involved and very very committed. And he married a lady, and they got married, and they settled down in the town. One day I was walking along the street, and I met her a few years after their marriage. And of course, after we'd chatted for a moment or two, I I asked her how things were in the church. My wife was standing looking at me, and she says, I was watching your face when she answered, and it wasn't a pretty picture. Well, sure, that's no problem. My face isn't usually pretty anyway. Because what she said to me was, oh, we don't go there anymore. We're going to a big Baptist church now. Big Baptist church in the town. And it's great now because we don't have to be so heavily involved. My husband was just far too busy in that church. I was cross. That young man was a vital part of that local assembly. And with him gone, there was no one left to do those jobs. And the church began to decline. While a formerly useful young man in the Lord's work was now sitting in a church with 300 people doing absolutely nothing. At ease in Zion. A Christian Epicurean. Let me get through my life with as little hassle as possible. And then there were the Stoics. The Stoics who began their philosophy with the work of a Cypriot philosopher called Zeno, roughly around the same time as the Epicureans. They believed that God was in everything, and everything was God. Aye, that's a bit like this Celtic Christianity. Its overriding idea was an attempt to live in harmony with the world and at one with nature and That involves a total acceptance of whatever comes to pass, the inevitability of life, whatever your fate should be. It's the will of the gods. The Stoics just accepted it passively and without any resentments. Fatalistic, modern Stoics. 
people with no sense of God driving and guiding their lives, who do the best they can, who, in whatever circumstances they find themselves, adopt what they call a stiff upper lip and keep calm and carry on. And when it comes to their funeral and their life is over, they have played in the funeral parlour, I did it my way. And there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof, destruction and death. Is any wonder Paul despaired? It's idolatry. And its godless philosophies would be deeply troubling. And the godless worldviews that were floating around, don't they upset us? And don't they upset us now? And don't they make our hearts grieve? These groups of philosophers holding very different worldviews and opinions about life and death, but united in their derision of Paul. Look at what they thought of him. First thing we see here is that they despised his speech. Verse 18. Some said, what will this babbler say? Very often we think that refers to his pattern of speech. Paul was not, we know, he was not an accomplished orator like the great Athenian speakers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. And 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, he writes, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 5 and to 6, For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles, but though I be rude in speech, that doesn't mean he was rude in the sense that we would know it, but it means that he was speech was was pathetic. Rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. What he's saying is, even though I am untrained in speech, yet not in knowledge. Matthew Henry said, it is far better to be plain in speech and walking openly and consistently with the gospel than to be admired by thousands and lifted up in your own pride. But maybe there's more to it than that. The word babbler here in Greek is the word spermologos. It literally means a seed picker. Somebody who goes around picking up little scraps of information, telling them a gossip. Somebody who goes around lifting little bits and pieces. Somebody not worth listening to. It shows the utter contempt, this word. The utter contempt that these self-obsessed vain scholars had for the one who was standing bringing the life-giving message of the gospel. The great thinkers of the world thinking of the message of the cross with utter derision. The great university professors who sit in their ivory towers and mock people like us. And yet in their haughty wisdom, 
they totally missed the point. Look at carefully at the wording of verse 18. What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Strange gods. Strange, indeed. They were so used to multiple deities and idolatry. They were so used to pantheons of Greek gods that they totally misunderstood the message of Paul. The word resurrection is the Greek word anastasis. The Greek literally means a raising or rising up. A resurrection, an uprising into a state of higher advancement and blessedness. I'm going to give you some grammar. Now, I'm not trying to be smart here. My Greek grammar is hopeless. It died 30 years ago and it's never been resurrected. Uh, So there's no anastasis going on here. But the word is in the accusative singular female case, which makes it a feminine noun. Anastasis is a girl. The Athenians said this man's preaching about strange gods. Gods called Jesus and Anastasia. Jesus and resurrection, of course, Paul was saying. Some new God and his goddess, Jesus and Anastasia. And look, in their great wisdom, in their great intellectual ability, they're standing and they're mocking and they're scorning Paul. And they're so spiritually blind that they can't even grasp the simplest of gospel messages that Christ died for sinners on the cross and rose again from the dead. They have blotted out the gospel because of their sin. Do you know, in a sense, this helps us. In a sense, it helps us to understand why the so-called great thinkers of today can't seem to grasp the very simplicity of the good news of the gospel. Because no matter how well-educated a person may be, no matter how highly qualified, no matter how deeply intellectual, all our learning outside of Christ, all of our learning is corrupted and twisted by sin. It's what we mean when we talk about total depravity of mankind how everything in our lives, our minds and our will and our logic, our reason, our emotions are all deeply damaged by Adam's fall and we are sinful to the core. And all that learning is so corrupted that we are so blinded by it that we are unable to grasp the truth of the gospel without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit awakening us to our true condition. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul writes, 
if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Maybe that's exactly God's plan. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, Paul says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Utter confusion. It's a terrible picture, isn't it? What I've done tonight is just basically paint you a picture of the world as it is, for it hasn't changed. Idolatry, worldly philosophy, utter confusion, living in the blindness and darkness of our corrupt, sinful nature. Paul has preached in the synagogue He's preached in the marketplace, the Agora. But at the end of our passage in verse 19, he's going to be taken to the highest court in Athens, to the ancient city council of the Areopagus, the former seat of power, and now the worthless talking shop of the intellectuals. And they took him and brought him into our, unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. God willing, in two weeks' time, we look at that sermon. Paul preaches at the Areopagus. Gives us an insight of how he will present the gospel to Gentiles. So Paul has arrived in Athens. He's witnessed extreme paganism. He's been confronted by some very clever people who laugh at him so much that they fail to even grasp the simplicity and importance of the life-changing gospel message. It'd be terrible if we did that. It'd be terrible if we thought we were so smart, so clever, that we totally missed eternal life.